With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv. She who now has conversations that go so far beyond the realm of myth that the podcast's name could rightfully be questioned. (laughs) And yet here we are. I'm not changing anything. And and, like that little joke slash accurate depiction of the podcast is actually irrelevant today because while this episode is diving in to Athenian politics and gender and the roles of women, particularly those who were living in Athens but were not technically Athenian, it also revolves around a certain man's mythology and how a certain city used and developed it to enhance their own presence and dominance in the Mediterranean. Yes, Theseus is involved in today's episode. Today, I spoke with Dr. Rebecca Futo Kennedy, who specializes in, among other things, immigrant women in classical Athens. Fucking cool. She and I actually met up for a drink in Athens a while back, and I have been eagerly awaiting this conversation ever since. We talk about Theseus, not so much the man as the political machinations that existed within him and his mythology. Because unlike other heroes, Theseus is almost inherently political, and gods, does that make him interesting amongst all of the horror associated with him? (laughs) We talked about immigration in Athens, both after the Persian Wars and then again after the Peloponnesian War, and how those wars and the time periods influenced who did and did not get to call themselves Athenian officially, but particularly how that affected women. Duh. (laughs) Even how some women used it to their advantage, or at least like they did what they could to enjoy the hell out of their lives, the ones that they got to have. Party girls of Athens, if you will. And we just talked about Greece and Athens, um, generally, uh, because we both love both. <laughs> this episode is absolutely fascinating, and I'm just so thrilled with episodes like it. Like, the way I, that these conversations I don't know, through them, I've been able to share the ways that mythology ties directly into history in the ancient world, the way that the two are just connected in this way that is so often difficult to comprehend if you're just reading a bit of mythology. It is what I love most about the ancient world, you know, the reality behind the myths, the purpose behind them, the very real people that they affected. And at the risk of rambling about this further, (laughs) let's just dive right in. Conversations, the politics of mythology, foreigners and party girls of classical Athens with Dr. Rebecca Futo-Kennedy. Obviously, mythology is my thing. And, And Athenian mythology is so interesting because... It's so like, you know, you were just saying before we kind of started fully recording that it's so tied together with like their national identity. And it seems so much of it seems to like come later and be so on purpose and like intentional in a way that that so much of Greek mythology isn't. And that's what I it's so interesting. So, yes, like this myth of autochthony, I've told it before, you know, um, on the show. So we (laughs) I also recently had to explain it in a Patreon episode I did about Hephaestus where people ask me questions. So, you know, the 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 gist of it being (laughs) I'm not going to try to say it here. I'm going to put it in the introduction. That's what I'm going to do. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's my favorite myth to tell. Um, I tell it in classes (laughs) and the students are like, 
this is like their national identity myth. I'm like, yeah, basically. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is it. and then tying that, yeah, you know, the... <laughs> They the, tie it into sacred spaces and then, you know, they tie uh, build buildings representing it. So do they, okay, do they have like a lot of visual representation of the Hephaestus and Athena interaction, I'm going to call it? Like, uh, well, no, it's the birth of Erechtheus. Yeah, but like the lead up to um, right. Erechtheus. And, and, and Hephaestus and Athena are always there, sort of like partnered. Right. I love it. So it's alluded to, but it's not made obvious. Right. Right. We, we don't um, need to see it. <laughs> No one needs to see that. Um, but I mean, I would love to see a vase that has Athena holding, like disgustedly holding a tuft of wool, you know, like, yeah, just, like really great. looking at her leg, like, Ugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just like, eh. yeah, I would love that. But uh, I don't, I don't know of one. Like if yeah. there is one, maybe Kate Topper knows. You know? <laughs> Incredible. Um, well, and I also like, and I don't want to like start onto too many things, but I also am deeply fascinated by the Theseus the Theseus myth yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. how they well, kind of created so him there. for the same reason yeah yeah there's so much of the way he gets elevated over the course of the fifth century um and he's his story is um intimately tied into the sort of anti-immigrant and um negative foreign women stories yeah um, Medea, that right? we see in well he's he's um that's the earliest. Um, yeah. he, there, there are vase images of him and Medea. Like the earliest representations of Medea in Athenian context is on vases of her trying to poison Theseus. Really? Um, yeah. Um, but we're also looking at, you're looking at the Hippolytus story, right, with right. Phaedra. Um, and then you're also looking at uh, Euripides' version of the suppliants, which is actually the children of the seven against Thebes. And Theseus doesn't want to let them in the city as suppliants. He wants to reject them. Right. Um, and he has this line in there where he's like, I can't even believe that you guys intermarried with, you know, foreigners and, and dirty your bloodline. And his oh. mom scolds him because, of course, his mom is like, sweetie, you know, you're not a pure Athenian either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's like there's all these like he shows up in the um, in the later fifth century, sort of from the 430s onward, sort of in tragedies that are all about sort of supplication and immigration um, or foreign, foreignness, foreign contamination. Yeah. Um, and, but in the earliest versions of the story, it's Medea coming in trying to poison him. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. That. So to yeah, like, so there's a lot of that stuff going yeah. on. So to pull it back for, for the listeners, like, so what, you know, can you give us a, like a bit of a background on like what, what is happening in Athens that is causing them to have this kind of influx in, in commentary on immigration? Yeah. So, um, uh, so most people who know anything about Greek history know about the Persian Wars, um, which they, which everyone thinks ended in like 478, 479 with the battles of Plataea, Salamis and then Plataea. Um, but there wasn't actually a peace treaty um, and, uh, until, if there was one, it happened in like, you know, 447 or something like that, mm. but that treaty is even disputed. Um but so what did happen, though, is that the Persians sort of left their aspirations of taking mainland Greece behind. And what this wars did was the Athenians, um, under the sort of shadow of the, the Persian wars, built a massive navy. And um, with that massive navy, they became uh, the dominant sea power um, in the Aegean. Uh, they had been, there had been some competitors earlier, um, Corinth, for example, and then Aegina, um, Chios, 
Samos um, in the islands and Lesbos in the islands. But that war really, because a- Athens was ground zero, they sort of, they built 300 triremes, which is like the biggest fleet. Um, even if they didn't have them all on the sea at the same time, they built that many to be able to rotate it. Wow. Um, I think the next biggest was something like like Lesbos or something had like 40 something. Jesus. Um, okay. Yeah. Big difference. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a massive difference if you're yeah. able to have 200 warships in the water at all times. Uh, part of it was its desire to protect its uh, grain trade, the grain trade, which was coming down from the Black Sea. And so as part of the impetus, though, of the Persian Wars is that once the, the sort of main battles on the mainland of Greece left, the Athenians started moving to use their navy to push the Persians back out of the islands um, and back into Asia Minor, um, and then also even to claim territory. And what happened is that they set themselves up as the liberators, but pretty much within a, a decade um, by, I think the earliest evidence we have for the Athenians sort of flipping from liberators to the new enslavers, <laughs> so the new imperialists, is like 472 um, with the uh, island of Thassos. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, the island of the Phacelus decree um, is an inscription that shows a tree that they've signed that makes them subordinates of the Athenians. And they're not allowed to like leave their grouping. They oh. forged something in 478 called the Delian League. Um, which is uh, they all get together on the sacred island of Delos and they sign a treaty that basically Athens will save them and protect them. So Athens uses this as a way to um, gain um, r- really strong control of the Mediterranean, uh, of the Aegean part of the Mediterranean. Um, by the 450s, they are forcing their allies to use their um, coinage, right? So it's about money, it's about trade routes, it's about uh, power. Um, but because Athens becomes this major player, they become a major, you know, the major sort of economic hub in, in the mainland. Mm-hmm. Um, no longer, it's no longer Corinth. It's, it's like, so immigrants are flooding into Athens because that is where all the ships are. That's where all the building activity starts happening. Even though they didn't start building on the Acropolis until 447, they started building in the Agora um, in the 460s. Um, And so craftsmen are being brought in um, from other places. So we have lots of people coming in to work. There's also, it's got two ports now uh, in this period. So you have people coming in from Megara, um, from other places to just work. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot of merchants coming in. The Piraeus becomes a sort of major port. Um, We actually have evidence um, in the archaeological record. If you go to the Piraeus Museum, which is sort of my favorite museum in, in Greece, they actually have the sort of weights and measure boards where you exchange your coinage and stuff wow. uh, when you come into the port, uh, things like this. And so this, because it becomes this huge hub, they start getting more and more influx of citizens uh, or of, of immigrants. There's a lot of debate over the timing of all of this, but um, myself and some others, um, we argue that it was in the 460s that the Athenians decide that one, they need to start managing this population. And so they create a category in law called the medic, M-E-T-I-C, not M-E-D-I-C, just want to clarify. <laughs> there are many medics who are medics, <laughs> yeah. um, but they are not the same thing. Um, and so the, the medic is this sort of, um, it's an in-between the enslaved and the citizen. It's a free resident, mm-hmm. um, but there are lots of restrictions on them. Like they are not allowed to um, own property. They're not allowed to own buildings. They have to pay a special tax. That's the sort of defining feature of them. They pay a tax on their person. Um, if you stay in the city for more than like a few weeks, like a merchant might pass through 
right? Right. Things like that. But if you're staying in the city for a longer period of time, then you have to pay this tax and register. And the penalties for not registering are actually to be sold into enslavement. So, oh my gosh. Um, it's, 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 we're, you know, there are also privileges though. Like if you're a sort of wealthy um, medic, um, people like Lysias, the orator later in the, in the period, you get, can get special privileges like um, you can get exemption from the tax. You can get the right to own land, sort of things like that. But for the most part, the, the, the poor um, immigrants and the, particularly the women immigrants um, who uh, come into the city, they cannot get these special exemptions. <laughs> the, 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 but so that happens, we think, in the 460s. In the 450, 451, the Athenians pass a law that is the first of its kind that we know of in the sort of Greek polis, polis, which is they restrict citizenship to only people who have both a father and a mother who are Athenian. Um, and most other places, as long as your father is an Athenian or if your father's a citizen, then you're a citizen. Mm-hmm. Athens passes a double descent law. And this seems to represent an increase in anti-immigrant sentiment. And mm-hmm. my argument has been that they start managing the population in the 460s and once you start managing them and recognizing them as a distinctive population, you now engender prejudice. And so this prejudice sort of builds up yeah. um, to the desire for um, regulating them even further. Uh, but the problem is, is that immigrant women, foreign women in the city can still marry citizens. Um, so between the sort of 460s and 451, we have a whole series of foreign women who are marrying Athenian citizens, and some of them are very famous. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of our sort of most famous people, like the General Chimon or the General Themistocles or all these sort of guys, they're the daughters, uh, they're the, the children of um, foreign mothers mm-hmm. with Athenian citizens. So they're very wealthy, you know, things like this. Yeah. So this law is passed um, and there's a crackdown and a sort of separation. And the, the only targets for this law can be these foreign women because the children of citizen women and foreign men were never allowed to be citizens. So it's only restricting these activities of these foreign women. Um, so although previous scholars had thought, well, you know, there weren't really that many women coming to the city for it to matter, there must have been enough for them to yeah. pass a law, right? And for them to have their own special tax category. The tax for a male uh, medic and, and or one with or without a family was um, 12 drachma per year. And for a woman, independent woman, it was six drachma. So huh. they had their own special tax. So uh, Ben Krieg has done like sort of a reassessment of the demographics. And, and, um, and I, I think if you say probably about 10% of the resident foreigner population was women in the fifth century. It's going to go up in the fourth century and the laws are going to get even more draconian. Yeah. Um, so, but so, yeah, so we have this sort of increase in, in to the point where it sort of engenders um, a, a need to sort of manage the population because yeah. they're not citizens and they're not slaves. And so, but we have enough of them that they sort of, and they looked and they're mostly other Greeks. So they look like everybody else, right? Uh, And then you have people who are freed from enslavement going also into this population. So though nobody knows what to do. So they create a system. The system then seems to like mark them as a distinctive group. And then you pass a law restricting them even further in the 450s. And this continues on. And we actually start seeing references to it in Greek tragedies um, from the beginning of its formation, but starting after the passage of this law in 451, we start seeing more evidence of sort of negative representations of foreign women in Greek mythology, or Athenian specific mythology, yeah. um, and specifically on the tragic stage. 
Uh, and then when we get to the, the building programs that start in the 440s, um, as the Athenians become more clearly um, an empire and distinguishing themselves from other Greeks in a more harsh line uh, in their league, in their their alliances with these other Greek cities and the way they treat other Greek cities, um, we see a, a much starker hardening of the lines between citizen and foreigner within the ideology of the city. So lots of Amazon vases start popping up, you know, um, right? Yeah. And we start seeing things like the, these buildings, uh, representations on the buildings of things like the myth of autochthony. Mm-hmm. Um, and on vases, the myth of autochthony starts to really emerge in the 440s as a sort of Athenian national story. So then the Peloponnesian War comes, and all hell breaks loose, everything changes. They have to loosen the laws because they need more citizen babies. And so they allow intermarriage, they allow the, the children of these foreign women to become citizens again until, and then, but then in 403, when the war ends, they reinstitute the law oh my God. much more harshly. So yeah, These so the, sort of the li- <laughs> yeah, so like the first thing they do when they re- reestablish the democracy at the end of the war is they reenact their anti-immigration laws. Um, so, so it's because in some instances we actually see evidence in oratory from around the period that they blame the some people were blaming the sort of relaxation of the laws for Athens's loss, like they violated the purity. You see a lot of discourse of purity. Oh, gosh. Um, both in the mythology, of, in, the, in the tragedies, and in, and in these orations. Yeah. So it's all sort of wrapped up together, but it, it seems to have actually been, you know, influx, large influx of citizenships as the Athenians got really wealthy, and they were trying to figure out how to distribute these funds and who could have them and who couldn't, right? Right. So they start, you know, lots of immigrants coming in. They're bringing in foreign cults. Right. So we have the cult of Isis and the cult of Vendus from Thrace, like all getting established in the Piraeus and like the 440s and stuff like there's there's all this sort of influx. So there's a lot of anxiety, um, but there's also something to be said for the um, fear of um, resources because they start paying citizens to attend assembly. They start paying citizens to attend the theater. They start paying citizens to be on juries and they're giving free distributions of grain to citizens. So how do you know who a citizen is? You got to be able to define it. Yeah. So, so yeah. So that's it, it's all it's all uh, it's very complicated. But what's really interesting about the Athenian um, example is how much evidence we have of how intertwined the sort of public, um, artistic, architectural, you know, civic stuff is all how intertwined it all is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. I mean, just the way that their mythology, you know, in in certain cases, Autochthony and and Theseus, like, are so intentional, and then you can like tie them to these things happening. Like, they make it makes it so unique compared to you know the broader mythology of Greece. But at the same time, I think that often when a person is just coming to mythology as just like an interested, you know. But, you know, any just anyone kind of finding it, you don't realize the sort of complexities and the way that Athens influenced it. And it I don't know, I like I don't even have like a point for this, but just is so fascinating to me <laughs> the way that Theseus is like and it's something I've tried to emphasize emphasize on the show, like Theseus is like a creation for a purpose in a way that like Heracles is not. You know, and it's so yeah, yeah. He's, he's actually the Athenian Heracles. Right? Yeah, yeah, uh, and they do it so. I mean, and that's actually there's a really good yeah there's a really good book um, called The Athenian Experiment, uh, written Ooh. by Greg Anderson, 
where he actually looks at the creation of the Athenian democratic structure that we come to know of as the Athenian democracy, the sort of mm -hmm. structure that gets put in place in 510, 509, um, between sort of 510 and 507. Um, this sort of period in here where there's a, the overthrow of the Pisistratid government and then the installation of the democracy under Cleisthenes. And his argument, which I think is super interesting and correct, is he traces the rise of the sort of myths of the labors of Theseus mm. to coincide with the creation of this new democratic system. And one of the things that's really interesting is because he, this is where we see the sort of earliest versions of Theseus as the Sinoicizer. Um, Sinoicism, for, for your audience, if they are not familiar with that very commonly used word. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm like, I don't know what it is. Thank you for explaining. <laughs> so when Athens, one of the things that made Athens a superpower, um, what made them go from sort of like a backwater um, Athenian pol a Greek polis to a, a military superpower within a sort of a decade, essentially, like 20 year period, right? Between 510 when the Pisistratids sort of uh, were kicked out and 590 or 490 when the Battle of Marathon takes place, something happens in Athens. <laughs> and that something is the creation of um, the superpolis. So in many other polis, you have the city and that's the polis. And then they might control surrounding a territory, but the people in that surrounding territory aren't citizens in the same way. Hmm. What happened in Attica is that the entire territory of Attica, they all became citizens in this new system um, hmm. with the creation of the deem structure. Um, and so you have this sort of, you know, they have these deems that they're like little counties within Attica and they all get pulled into this new structure. And so they all are directly, you know, able to participate in governance. They can all be elected to the council. They can all, you know, be elected archon. Um, and they create this really elaborate system. There's a really cool map um, that I show my students that was made by the American School of Classical Studies for their for the Agora uh, publications um, that shows how the intricacy of sort of how they they map this out. Mm -hmm. um, but it's called the Sinoicism. Um, it's 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 what gives them the biggest man manpower pool. Hmm, right um, of other of the other polis yeah. um, and they are all citizens they're not like the spartan army you've got the spartans and then you've got the, the perioikoi and sort of yeah. like the hang the hanger arounds right and then the helots yeah um these are all these all become citizens of athens in this yeah. moment and so it's it, it gives them this massive advantage um in terms of manpower and also landed resources and theseus is elevated as the guy <laughs> who does this. And not right. only that is that the early evidence, the earliest evidence we have of his labors come from this, this same time period. Um, and what's interesting is that because of course you have these much larger cities, the, these sort of could have been competing polis mm -hmm. outside of Attica, cities like Ramnus, um, for example, or Piraeus itself, um, these sort of little territories, uh, Marathon, where the temple of Nemesis was, you know, you should have these all the sort of competing villages that could have been their own, and they had their own traditions and they had their own sort of structures of local governance. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you see is the myths of Theseus, his labors, all take place in some of these major uh, corners of the new Attic territory as if they're giving them a national hero to buy into that has these deep connections to their own territory. Yeah. So it gives them a sort of overarching, you know, super myth because they create 10 tribes as a part of the new democratic structure. And there's a, a member, uh, each, of the, each of the 10 heroes, the eponymous heroes, comes from one very powerful place in Attica that had a large polis. 
right? Mm. A, a large potential polis. Right. Um, but that Attica brought it in and, and yoked it to itself. So then they make Theseus the sort of overarching national hero um, to go over top of the 10 tribes representing the 10 um, districts yeah. um, within Athens here. So it's a really so, so, sort of interesting way that Theseus gets used. And I think Anderson is really right on when he sort of looks at the way Theseus was uh, mobilized by the people who were creating this structure. Um, so we always refer to it as Cleisthenes because we love to give you know great men a single individual, but it's probably a group of politicians who were all getting, there's no way you're going to get one guy is going to get this to work. You have to have a lot of buy-in yeah. um, to get something this radical to actually work. And so um, he thinks that they were basically using Theseus as a propaganda tool to get people to buy into this new democratic system by making Theseus the founder of the democracy and making Theseus the founder of this Attic superpolis yeah. um, for the Athenians. And that's where the labors sort of actually, um, the myths of the labors sort of really become prominent. Before that, you only have the Minotaur story. You don't yeah. have the labors. Okay, so this is fascinating. And now I'm, so I'm trying to think like, like marathon makes sense the marathonian bull um mm -hmm. being one of his major you know <laughs> achievements but when i think of the labors i think of the like i just call it his like serial killer walk from treason to athens but that's going through you know not that part of attica that you're talking about so like what kind of like i'm just i'm trying to decide if i've like misremembering what counts as his labor so like what are the like you know cliff's notes on what he does in the other areas that link him to this so I think one of the things that's really important is to look at those labors as all mini versions of Heracles' labors. Yes. But okay, my favorite thing right, about so. that, though, is that he mostly just kills people and Heracles mostly kills like terrifying monsters. And I think that says so much about Theseus. But not but not necessarily, right? I mean, if you sort of look at um, like, what's the guy um, that Theseus, that uh, Heracles kills with the bed, right? A... No, but that Theseus kills, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, the bed. Yeah. So there's the bed thing, right? Yeah. There's like so there's all I think there's there's there there's an attempts. I would have to actually spend some time. I haven't read uh Greg's book in a while. Um, I it but too. one Thanks of the one of the stories, one of the stories is at Eleusis, of course, which is the right. major cult center. Yeah. Right. So so Eleusis, you just have to get. Um Eleusis is the major competitor. Yeah, yeah, that would be enormous. Um, and it's and it's also on the Boeotian border. And so Thebes is almost as close as Athens is, right? And right. so a lot of these are on the edges of Attica, Attic territory, um, as a way to sort of pull them into Athens and away from Boeotia, away from uh, Thebes. Mm -hmm. So I think the you have to think about the Eleusis connection yes. um, being very, very important in yeah. this one. This there's makes, the yeah sorry yeah so, I mean that's one of the big ones there's mm -hmm. the, the 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 trek back from Epidaurus because there's also the big the big debate over I mean so but the Epidaurus on the way back um, that's sort of part of his journey it's also you know a model for Athenian behavior mm -hmm. right their biggest competitors in before the fifth century are Megara um, in terms of sea power mm -hmm. um, in terms of trade networks Corinth and Megara. Right. So, of course, you're going to subdue those territories. Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. He's going through those <laughs> places, like, taking them down. Yeah. 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 I Okay. I love that. I also, this just reminds me, and I think the listeners need to know that there are, and I I keep meaning to, like, actually look into it. I've just, like, noticed this as I've, you know, been driving that route. But, like, now when you drive from the Argolid to Athens, 
there's like a couple of um i think they're like tunnels through the mountain that they've named yeah, for yeah, some yeah, of yeah. theseus's like victims i call yeah, them so his labors there's, yeah. well there's two roads there's now two roads i don't know when's the last time you were on the road traveling yeah, that but a year ago but. um well so there used to be the what they call it the old road mm. right which is the one that hugs along the coast right and then they built the national highway the olympia highway um, which is the one that burrows through the mountains. I think that just opened a few years ago. Yeah, that's what, definitely um, what we would have taken. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was I was in Greece for the last ten weeks, and um, uh, I was he- heading out to um, a little village called Agi Theodori, which is almost to Corinth. It's like sixteen kilometers from Corinth, mm. and um, we we have a sail. We were going on a sailboat there. A sailboat there. Oh, lovely. And. Um, yeah, it's it was it's a big thing we just did. Uh, we now have a Greek sailboat. Oh, that's um, so fun! <laughs> we, named, we renamed it Eno after one oh, of the daughters of Okeanos. Yep. Uh, and the reason why we named it that is because when you have to put a call into a harbor or to anyone, you have to spell out your name, the name of your boat in the international <laughs> call letters. And so we wanted one that was as short as possible. Yeah. <laughs> so like okay because we almost named it Medea, which we thought would have been cool but yeah <laughs> but, uh, yeah, io so, make so, it just even a little but, shorter <laughs> yeah but we thought io was a little too short so we went yeah. we thought ocean you know okay and it's you know yeah oh yeah no that but, would fit um, a little bit yeah but the uh the road the, those are the only two roads that go in to the Argolid, mm. like you can't get there any other way. It used to be one road, so now there are yeah. two roads. And of course, um, we were trying to get back out there to get on the boat uh, by train later, and uh, a few days later, and a fire, the, one of the big fires had broken out in Greece, oh. and they closed both of the roads down, so nobody was in and out, or the, of the, uh, you couldn't get from the Argolid to Attica. Whoa! <laughs> For like four days, it's yeah. just completely shut down. Um, yeah, so it was, it's, it's, uh, you know, you think about the, the that's the a very important. Um, highly traveled way, but it's also, those are the cities, Corinth, Megara, Athens, Egina, right? The island of Egina is right mm-hmm. there. Those are the, were the major trade competitors with each other. And so you've got Theseus traveling back from the Argolid, subduing um, the sort of the, the peoples of these regions, mm-hmm. right? It's a purely imperialist sort of myth, um, which actually is interesting because um, Pisistratus um, is probably one of the guys who helped subdue the island of Egina, like d- diminish the power of the island of Egina for the Athenians. Um, he's often, you know, we talk about the Pisistratids in Greek history as mm-hmm. being uh, tyrants and bad guys, but Pisistratis is actually looked back on mostly as a golden age. Mm. <laughs> um, and people, the, the general, the representations of him generally have the, the people generally in Athens being really happy to have him around. It's the other aristocrats who don't get to share power that don't like it. Mm. But his son is called the is is considered the bad tyrant, and mm. it seems to be the principle of hereditary power that's the problem, not that Pisistratus gained authority. Um, he was a military victor for them, and and he brought um, a lot of uh, wealth to the lower classes, and so um, oh, wow. and the middle classes. So he sort of um, gets a good rap. And one of the things is he's but so you see in his, uh, sort of pieces of of uh, Theseus's mythology sort of pick up the sort of activities that were in, yeah. happening in the military front. Well, yeah. And like, uh, it's all about like controlling the isthmus, right? It's like if Theseus is taking that whole route and, you know, conquering everybody and you're, along you're knocking the way. down your competitors um, yeah. and then you're, you're taking, you're seizing control of Eleusis. 
um, you know, you're seizing control of, of the temple of nemesis. So some major sacred sites. Yeah. And you are, um, taking control of your, um, your, your rivals. So I think that's a lot of what's happening there. Yeah. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, there's just so much. One, I did not know there was a temple of Nemesis. That sounds amazing. Yeah, and like, it's actually there's very little of it left. It's um it's near the village. It's it's up in Marathon, and it's not too far from the um. They did just is I I, I can I, I think I can say this out loud, but because they did announce it, they just haven't like let anybody see it. Mm. Um, a few years ago, I heard that the Greek Archaeological Survey actually found what they had been the sort of the. Uh, not easy to find. They had never located the the, the deem center for Marathon, mm. and they think they found it. Like Ooh. I think they they found it a few years ago, back in like 2018 or something. So um, hopefully they're working on it. But another nearby major major uh, deem center is is Ramnus, which is on the coast and fortified. Mm. But the Temple of Nemesis was sort of there near Ramnus, um, and near the plain of Marathon, and it was completely dismantled by the Christians because oh. it was a major competitor for them. <laughs> like Those Eleusis. Um, like, you know, like Eleusis, it was, and Brauron, like the, anything that was sort of, but Nemesis, for whatever reason, they dismantled it down to almost nothing. So that, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I never think of Nemesis as somebody who'd get a temple. I love hearing about, like it reminds me of, because I went to Agena the, for the first time this last trip to Athens and it just reminds me of, you know, the, of course, I'm going to forget what the temple is there. The special, unique one. <laughs> oh, Aphaya. Yeah, Thank the you. Aphaya. Like these temples. That we, that we do, who we don't even know what it's, what it's for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like just these temples where it's like sort of one-offs. Like the idea of a temple to Nemesis is just amazing. Um, yeah. Not, like what, like what's the intention there of a goddess like that? Anyway, fascinating. Um, But okay. The Theseus is just, I absolutely love it. So then. The foreign women aspect, now that's all I can think about, you know, seeing the Amazons as this kind of like invading mm -hmm. foreign women force. Yeah, and, 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 that, and that's one of the earliest. So in the, when they, you know, they didn't start rebuilding the, um, the part, the, uh, the Acropolis buildings until, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the built, they started, commenced with the building of the Parthenon in 447. But right. there was a lot of building activity in Athens starting in the 460s, and it was sponsored by Cimon, who was the son of Miltiades, who was the general who um, led the day at Marathon, uh, the Battle mm. of Marathon. And one of the most famous buildings um, 
that he sponsored. His his sister Elpenike, who was um, the daughter of so Kaimon and Elpenike were both the children of Miltiades by a foreign woman, by a Thracian princess, um, and so they often had this like Elpenike especially had this reputation for being a sort of big time party girl, and um, uh, one of the other women who was well known as a big time party girl uh, even gets her own verb um, is Corsaira, who was probably the daughter of Pisistratus um, in Aristophanes's. Um, uh, one of Aristophanes' plays, there's a character who's like, um, he's referred to as being corsirified, uh, <laughs> meaning he like, <laughs> meaning he's like really like, you know, all into like showy luxury um, uh, kind of things. But, uh, but yeah, so they, they, sh- he married Elpenike off, Miltiades dies in prison because he's in debt to the city because the Athenians, they're never really kind to their successful generals yeah. because they're always worried that they're going to try and overthrow the democracy. So <gasps> they're always sending them into exile or like <laughs> something. Right. So Miltiades dies in debtor's prison because um, he was charged 50 talents for a, a botched attempt to take a, a territory for them. Um, and in order to pay it off, Chimon marries his sister off to like the wealthiest man in Athens and they go on this building spree and sort of build all these buildings in the Agora. And uh, one of the most famous is a building called the Stoa Poikile, uh, the painted Stoa. It's famous because this is where the Stoics get their name. Uh, this is where they hung out. Uh, but it was famous because it was painted. It had these four paintings uh, in the building. And then later, which I'll, I'll describe the painting in a second so you can yeah. see how this sort of works out. Um, but then later, during the Peloponnesian War, it was this building where when the Athenians defeated and captured a group of, of over 200 Spartans at the island of Spacteria in 425, they took their shields um, as you know trophies and they hung them on this building. Wow. <laughs> and we have one. It's in the Agora Museum. Um, it's very cool. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but uh, so the building had four paintings in it. Um, two were mythical, two were historical. Um, the first one is, um, and I can't remember the exact order of them, but they're sort of paired up. But the first one mm-hmm. is um, the invasion of the Amazons, right? Um, which has Theseus and Heracles sort of fighting the Amazons. Next to it is the Battle of Marathon. And one of the things that's very interesting is that the descriptions of the painting that we have from Pausanias, who, mm. who saw the paintings, describes the Persians and the Amazons as both wearing like leopard print you know, the sort of, they're given the same sort of outfits, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and you see this also on vase paintings. And so a lot of scholars have argued, art historians have argued that we we should see the Amazon stories as an analog for the Persian Wars, Mm. um, which I think is, is, you know, fine. Uh, But one of the things that's interesting about the marathon battle is it shows the sort of protected, protected gods and spirits sort of popping up in the corner. Mm. And so Athena, of course, pops up and Theseus pops up. Miltiades and Chimon claim to be descended from Theseus, which is another tie in here, which I'll do. explain another story uh, in a second. Um, but so, so Theseus pops up, you know, Pan is there, um, and they're sort of all in the background. And that's the pair, that's the painting right next to the, the Battle of the Amazon Anarchy. Then next mm-hmm. to that is the, um, the sack of Troy, which you would think is a really weird thing to put on this building, but it also, of course, shows up on the Parthenon. <laughs> Um, but the sack of Troy shows up, but the way it's described gives you an insight as to why it is on an Athenian monument to Athenians. Yeah. Um, in the center of the painting, and again, the Trojans are described as wearing these like leopard print outfits, right. um, sort of like the New Jersey housewives sort of tracksuit um, <laughs> with a you know with a Scythian hat. 
And um, they are, uh, so, so again, we have Trojan War as analogy, becomes in this period analogy for um, Persian Wars. Yeah. And the Tro- this is the, when the Trojans finally become Persianified, right, instead of being Greek, yeah. um, as they appear in the Homer. Um, but the, the thing in the center shows the judgment of a guy named Little Ajax or Ajax Locris. Right. So he's the guy who raped Cassandra on the altar of Zeus. Right. And um, it shows a trial for him, according to Pausanias. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also a play by Sophocles that's, um, that was uh, put on around the same time as this building went up. Um, called the Ajax Locris, which has as its central feature a trial scene of Ajax Locris. And the people who, the two people shown leading the trial are the two sons of Theseus who are inserted into the catalog of ships as having been yeah. at the Battle of, you know, the battle of Troy. Yeah. <laughs> so Cymon, uh, so, so what's happening simultaneously is one of the things of Cymon's claim to fame is that um, he, because people don't remember that Theseus got banished at the end of his life. This is yeah. why he's living in Troizen um, with Hippolyta, uh, with, with, um, not with Hippolyta, with Phaedra and his right. son Hippolytus. Um, he was kicked out because he killed the 50 sons of Pallas. Uh, but he had gone to the island of Skiros where he ended up being buried after his death. And Cymon goes and reclaims his mm-hmm. bones and brings them back and reburies them in Athens, right? He finds a supersized skeleton and brings it back yeah. because this is the only way they can like, you know, gain victory uh, in a in in a war, you know, of some battle of some sort, yeah. and so um, so, he, but he does so also by laying claim to the his relationship. So we have these three paintings, and they're all painted by uh, the, they're painted by different people. But one of them, the Troy, is painted by a painter, a famous painter named Polygnotus, who was also very famous for his vase paintings of Amazon Amazonomachies and things. Mm. He's also good friends with Sophocles, the playwright, who put mm. this play together. <laughs> and they're all good friends with Pericles. Wow. <laughs> um, but Polygnotus was also suggested that he had an affair with Elpenike, Cymon's sister. <laughs> There's so much happening. I love it so much. <laughs> right? So, you know, it's like, it's like the, you know, the, 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 you know, what is it? The, um, the real housewives, uh, the yeah. real you know, <laughs> of uh, Athens kind of Just thing. Just like the but best all this stuff, But these are all the movers and shakers who are passing the laws, funding the buildings that are presenting these new mythologies um, and embedding them within the, the Athenian imagination and literally into the landscape by putting them on buildings um, mm-hmm. in the landscape. Um, so you have all this stuff sort of going on where all of a sudden Amazons and the Trojan War all become analogies for the Persian Wars. And then you have these very specific stories that elevate the Athenians in these contexts long before the Athenians were ever considered a major player yeah. on the Greek stage. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's, you know, it's, and then we start seeing in the 430s, um, uh, we start seeing Theseus getting stories of Theseus and his relationships to foreigners put on the stage, right? Um, and I had mentioned um, in our sort of chit-chatting that um, the earliest vase images of Medea in Athens is her trying to poison Theseus. Um, but that's not, you know, what gets presented on stage. What gets presented on stage with Medea is um, her making a deal with Aegeus to help him, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to help him have a baby, which happens to be Theseus. Uh, I... But... Uh, but 
you know, doesn't talk about that story. But yeah. he, we see, you know, 427 is the Hippolytus, which has his son of an Amazon, um, you know, being fallen in love with his with his foreign wife, Phaedra, who is the daughter of, who is she the daughter of? Do you know who Phaedra is the Minos? And yeah. Minos? Yeah, the daughter yeah. of Pasiphae, right? Oh, of uh, Who's the woman who had sex with a bull? And made oh, the right. The connect and but, the connection to the Marathonian bull, then too, right? Like just pulling yeah. it all together. Yeah. yeah. But what's interesting about Pasiphae is like, so it comes up. She brings it up. Like she sees her love of her stepson Hippolytus, who was presented as an a male Amazon, right? Mm. He he is. It isn't that he hates um, women and hates men. He's asexual. He actually mm-hmm. presents himself as completely asexual. And an, and an adherent to Artemis instead of Aphrodite, right? And that's mm-hmm. the sort of crux of the, of the problem. Uh, Theseus is just fucking clueless the whole time of what's going on. But uh, Phaedra brings in pass- the story of Pasiphae as an explanation for what she sees as her corruption, her internal corruption and her unnatural, her desire for unnatural love, right. Right? And the love for her stepson. And so what you see, though, is Theseus is the source of this contagion because he's the one who brings Hippolytus with his kidnapping of the Amazon and he brings Phaedra in it with him. So he brings these impurities and contagion and the, the language of disease runs throughout that whole play to sort of represent all of their relationships to each other. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of the first version that we get. And then we have um, Euripides's suppliance where Euripides, where uh, Theseus is being asked to take in the children of the seven against Thebes and he wants to reject them Um and one of the lo- the things that he talks about is how he can't believe that you know the 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 the, the root of the problem, the reason why he has these these this problem of the seven against Thebes, um, is because he corrupted his bloodline. The king corrupted his bloodline, like marrying a foreigner. Um, and so even the Theseus, of course, is the daughter of uh, is the, is the son of a foreigner. Yeah. Right? And so you have all of this sort of weird stuff with Theseus where he gets to become a focal point for purity and impurity of descent um, in a time period when the Athenians are struggling with their immigration laws because of the Peloponnesian War and they are allowing children of foreign women to become citizens again. Right. <laughs> so it's like, wow, so much going on. <laughs> yeah. I the The thing that's always blown my mind about Theseus because he is so intentionally created and like pretty heavily Athenian propaganda that like they don't make him look that good like I know a lot of it is I I like read into things and I make him look worse because I think it's entertaining and I'll admit that but like there are so many like objective objectively bad parts of his story like you know you, you mentioned earlier the way that Athens is like rewritten into the catalog of ships so that we can all like pretend that they were there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's like, that's one of my. It's Demophon and Akamas, his sons. It's like, yeah. who are the true Democrats? Like, they're untainted by. Uh, and these are the children of Phaedra, by the way, right? But they're right. untainted by Theseus's crime. Yeah, I forgot that it was his sons. Like, I, of course, like chronologically, that makes sense. Um, but I just had always found it so entertaining because, like, the only mention of Athens in the whole damn thing is in the catalog of ships. And it's like, yeah, that yeah. very much came after the yeah. fact. But the way they, like, um, you know, wrote him into um, the Homeric tradition beyond that, too, like, with the Helen aspect yeah. is so fascinating to me. Like, they, I feel like, you know, there's, there's, imagine that it's not a coincidental connection to Sparta there, given the Peloponnesian War, but like still making him kidnap a nine-year-old girl with the intention of at least eventually 
you know, eventually marrying, marrying her. her. Yeah. yeah. Like it's so wild to me. Well, you know, she's the most beautiful woman in the world, like already yeah. in, in her, you know, in her, in her youth, she's been, she's been targeted for greatness. Um, but again, yeah. I, you know, this is one of those things where you like, you sort of have to, yeah. Is this some sort of analogy for, for wartime, you know, what's going on mm-hmm. with that? Because it's also very funny is that when Theseus is being elevated as um, a mythological hero for the Athenians, it's not in opposition to Sparta necessarily, though mm-hmm. the, um, the first Peloponnesian war uh, in the 450s is going on during some of this. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Kaimon, the guy who is funding most of these buildings, he was like a total, you know, Sparta lover. He named his kid Lacedaemonius. Oh my <laughs> God, like... what a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a thing that you do. That's interesting. <laughs> I didn't know anyone, Athenian, would do that. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Well, yeah, well, because well, because one of the problems is that he was trying to because the the big bad for the Athenians is was it was not the Spartans really it's mm-hmm. the Thebans mm-hmm. Thebes and Corinth are the major and it's really Thebes was the major enemy of the Athenians because they're all territorially butting up against each other and they're yeah. you know and Thebes and Athens are like perennially were perennially fighting over um, border territory I mean this is where the Plataeans become so important because they're in Boeotian territory but they ally with the Athenians the Thebans destroy Plataea not just once but twice you know in uh in historically you know once during the Peloponnesian War and then after the Spartans helped refound the city the Thebans destroyed it again like 10 years later um and so it's it's this con- sort of continual bone of contention because Plataea the, the Thebans and the Athenians are the real those those are the real enemies Sparta gets sort of roped in yeah um because they are more militarily powerful in, in the period. And then, of course, there's Argos, who is Athens's ally, which is sort of like sitting there as right Sparta's the traditional, yeah. um, tr- you know, Sparta's traditional um, enemy. Right. So, you know, no coincidence that the story of Agamemnon gets shifted from Sparta to, you know, to, a- to Argos. Argos. Yeah. Yeah. In the way that Thebes is always the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because then, but then in the Eumenides, if you've got Argos, um, uh, as the home of Orestes, then the Athenians can play the great ally and hero by restoring Orestes to his proper right. Um, position, right? And he's called a sumakos, an ally, which is the technical term that was used for the Athenians and their alliances. So, um, you know, by shifting the the geography and the myth, you can make it play to an audience of um, uh, to make it politically relevant at the great Dionysia, which of course is a military and imperial show showcase for mm-hmm. Athens. Uh, yeah. And it's not a surprise. Like it, it turns out, I, I think, I think I'm correct on this. Um, and I don't think anybody else has really argued about it. No one seems to care um, about this fragmented play, the Ajax Locris, but I think Rude. it actually is precedes the Eumenides as a trial scene that features Athenian characters oh, on stage. Um, I think it's a trend. Because what the Athenians were doing in this period with their empire is they were exerting control over um, the islanders, um, in part by requiring lawsuits of certain types involving murder or high levels of of funds to be tried in Athens instead of in their home territory. And so the Athenians were touting themselves as the people who bring justice and law. Right. um, uh, to places, and so now you have these like trial scenes showing up on in on the tragic stage, which the allies are there watching, um, and you have um, a trial being set in Troy that the Athenians there oversee. You have a trial in Athens, 
you know, at the time when the Athenians are getting ready to move the treasury from uh, Delos to Athens, <laughs> they have mm. Apollo cede uh, legal ground to Athena and let her judge him in the Eumenides, right? Yeah. So you have all this stuff going on and, and uh, uh, all these myths are sort of colluding um, to praise Athens, even if they don't look like they are, you know, yeah. Athenian rally cries. Um, and Theseus is sort of central figure to that, but they'll find anyway, you know, the Trojan War gets roped into this whole thing. And the Athenians seem to be able to find and make any myth an Athenian national myth. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not about, and I think your point that they don't make Theseus look good is that that's not what makes you a hero. Right. Right. Body count is what makes you a hero <laughs> right. in the ancient world. Right? You don't need to look good, but your ability to, you know, kill is is high. And doing labors on behalf of, you know, uh, you know, even if you're like, you know, this guy's bad. He like makes you fit into this bed and he either cuts off your feet or cuts off, you know, or stretches you. He's evil. He must be brought to justice. So yeah. you have your guy do it, right? Um, and that's how that's how it works. It's body yeah. count. And you have the old maxim that seems to be represented in so many myths, which is, you know, help your friends and harm your enemies, right? That's the sort of tragic, mythological tragic yeah. view. It's the tree bender that's my favorite, I have to say. But I, I think the guy who kicks people into the gaping mouth of a sea turtle is a close second. <laughs> it's really funny. So my, my spouse is um, currently still in Greece and he's uh, on the sailboat right now. And he's trying to, to learn how to single hand the boat because I'm just not going to be able to be on the boat all the time with him. And um, so he's practicing anchoring and he's over in Corinth, um, uh-huh. he's sort of uh, near the isthmus. And he anchored by this little town. And I asked him today, I was like, oh, you know, did you get a chance to go swimming? Because it's, you know, it's still like ridiculously hot over there. Yeah. It's, you know, it's been 100 degrees for, Ugh. you know. You know, 40, 40 Celsius for like a month straight or something. Yeah. And um, he went, he's like, yeah, there are sea turtles. There are giant turtles everywhere. <laughs> so he's like <laughs> swimming with giant turtles in the isthmus, right? <laughs> that makes me so happy. I've never seen a turtle in Greece, but the fact that you can find oh them my God, like, right I, there. So when I was, yeah, I was, um, yeah, they're right there. But, I yeah, mean, right I, there. I did... Um, I did a sail training on a, on a, on a training boat in the Ionian Sea this summer um, Uh. to get my sort of certification as a crew member. And um, we saw, we had dolphins swimming along with us, sea turtles swimming along with us. Like, yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, For him to be be camping out with a bunch of giant sea turtles, like right at, right around the Isthmus. That's exactly the spot. You got to watch out. Careful of those things. (laughs) I've actually learned quite a bit about, um, I've learned quite a bit about, the the uh, sort of changing my perspective about greek history and stuff from mm. learning to sail in in the mediterranean because you know one of the things you learn is that wind matters obviously <laughs> um but sail shapes you know like h- how fast a boat like a modern sailboat can only go like eight nautical miles an hour which is like mm. 10 miles an hour at top speed um and this is with a modern sail and yeah. they can actually beam reach, which is like, you can take the wind on the side An ancient sail can only take the wind from behind. Right. Yeah. So you can sail downwind. This is the thing to think about. I think about the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur and they got to get to Crete. So yeah. if you wanted to go to Crete, um, you know, in, you, you have to go to Crete during the summer because the boat goes downwind, <laughs> but that right. means you can't sail back up <laughs> yeah. until the winds shift until a change of season. So they had to have been down there for quite a bit of time. And it actually is going to take quite a while. It takes two days basically to sail to Crete in a modern sailboat. 
um, with good wind. Yeah. Um, and you have to, you know, you have to stop. You can't just, you have to stop on islands along the way. You can't just like power through cause it's just yeah. open sea. Um, and so, uh, just imagine, right. You have to, you can only sail downwind with your sail. Otherwise you have to row everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it will take a long time. So if it takes a modern sail about two days, it's going to take about, you know, four days, um, with an ancient sail boat, maybe more. Um, and then the boat has to stay there until the winds shift. Yeah. Well, and then like, also there's like, I mean, I'm trying to think of the, there's an enormous gap around Crete in terms of like where there are and are not islands to stop on too. Yeah. yeah. Like you have to, you have to, the, the easiest thing to do, like, so we were thinking next summer that we'll sail down to Crete and we can get there. There's a little island that you can stop it along the way, but to get back, we have to, we're actually going to cut along the side and go up towards Rhodes. Rhodes is 65 oh, yeah. nautical miles away. There's mm -hmm. an island you can stop in between. So you could do that in, you know, two day sail. Um, but, uh, you got to go up to roads and then you have to come back through the cyclades and the, the yeah. winds and the cyclades can be really tricky. So you have to sort of watch what you're doing. Um, but yeah, so I've learned a whole new respect for, um, uh, ancient w pace of life. So I, I, I'm always like, obviously I've talked about, I'm fascinated by the creation of the Theseus myths because it is just so different from like the, you know, oral storytelling epic tradition that, that led to so many others. And I've always yeah. been really curious about, about the Crete aspect. And so like, do you have, do you have theories on, on, you know, what, um, what role that served and like, basically, I mean, maybe not necessarily fully the role that's interesting too, but I'm basically curious about how much of the Theseus and Minotaur myth could be tied to like Athenian propaganda and how much was like kind of pre-existing on Crete you know, and then Theseus gets inserted later or like kind of, you know, anything to do with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I am, I am not particularly well versed in the sort of deepness of, you know, the deepness of how far these myths go back. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we have the evidence of the Theseus and the Minotaur myth in the, in the sixth century, maybe, I mean, it, it might go earlier, but I'm pretty sure we know we have it in the sixth century. We have, of course, if you go to Crete, right, and you mm -hmm. go to a, to the Heraclio Museum or, the, you know, there's the bullhorns. And if you just travel around the sites, you know, horns of consecration, as we always refer to them sort of yeah. jokingly, right? Mountain mountain sanctuaries with, with giant horns on them, right? So there's clearly, like, even if you sort of disregard Evans's rebuilding of Knossos, mm -hmm. um, uh, there's the, the ample evidence everywhere, right, of the, the bull, um, mm -hmm narratives and the, the horns and sort of all this stuff and so you know how far back um you would need i let me let me give me give me a call to all of my um cretan bronze age archaeology friends um who spend all their time working on this stuff yeah um how far yeah. the actual story goes back in crete because that i don't know yeah um, but it's clearly evidence in the material record everywhere you know as far back as the 17th century of the sort of predominance of bull the bull iconography yes. and and and, yeah. the, and the sort of bull myths uh, and stories. So that I I you know for sure right is there. Um, how much I I don't even think they even know who Theseus is. No, <laughs> right? like it doesn't even register. It's a purely Greek thing, and it may just be as far as I'm. I think of these older myths often as ways for upstart cities to insert themselves into the bigger stories. Yeah, right. Um, of of the bigger stories that already exist in the Mediterranean and Crete is something of a really interesting thing because Crete is sort of 
it's equidistant between the what we call the mainland of Greece now, right, and um, Egypt, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's equidistant from Europe and Africa. Um, it's got a, a lot of different stories attached to it from a very early period, um, and it's got it's it's got one of the earliest law codes, <laughs> written law codes in Greece, mm. right? It's got um, it becomes well known later in time for its mercenaries, but it is uh, it was clearly a major power. And, you know, there's always this story of how the quote unquote Mycenaeans, um, you know, attacked and took over the Minoans. Um, But the archaeological evidence suggests peaceful integration Mm -hmm. (laughs) and not conquest narrative. But we love conquest narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't I don't know. I think if we're going to see anything, Crete was for, you know, many centuries, the major trading kit on the block. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're clearly being connected to the mainland through Phoenician merchants and, and others. Mm-hmm. And this is a way for the Athenians, they tie themselves to the Trojan War stories as they, as they can, but this is a mm-hmm. way for them to tie themselves in and maybe recognize um, the movement of, I mean, the movement of stories, but also the movement of cult uh, and the movement of goods and things because clearly the amount of bull iconography mm-hmm. that the Cretans are manufacturing this must have been associated with them by the cities that they were trading with mm-hmm. on the mainlands yeah. like they must have had some I mean we like they, they found horns of consecration on the island of Naxos right like mm-hmm. everywhere the, the, the Cretans go you find these yeah um, this iconography so it's a way to sort of tie yourself in with this older strata of of the region mm-hmm. while while using what you know from those places what's familiar to you from those places mm-hmm. and then roping yourself in it's another way for the athenians to sort of like give themselves a a higher status yeah no it's i don't think it's... it has anything to do with sea conquest like the old story was like oh the thalassocracy story mm, and I'm, not, I'm not sure how much we want to give credit we want to give to that but theseus is like dating every daughter of you know minos yeah well exactly i know that's the thing it's like it's always seemed like all of that to me but then that's where the actual question the minotaur has always come in my head because like yes there's bulls everywhere but there is not like a minotaur you know so it's just kind of an interesting question but it it may have something to do with right but you know what is one of the things that the that that is most well known about egyptian culture Mm, mm, from the greeks and romans mm, it's hybrid creatures yes and so why they have hybrid gods right and their hybrid gods go back millennia right so maybe this is an influence from egypt that people aren't recognizing because they don't want to recognize the influence and power of egypt Mm -hmm. (laughs) in in the region Mm -hmm. um is that you know when you find these hybrid gods you can also almost almost always find analogs for them or connections to egypt from them Mm -hmm. so maybe that's where the minotaur comes from that's yeah that's really interesting that makes a lot of sense but but the way the athenians tell the story of course is that this is a corruption mm-hmm. yeah of course yeah that's because the thing like, it's like the, it's creed is bad because of it yeah but i mean them yeah. like the romans like the romans thought that the egyptians like why do you have you know hybrid gods like this is like mm-hmm. a really bad thing um as far as as far as um, romans were concerned and i don't think our, we don't see um hybrid holy people in greek mythology mm-hmm. either. <laughs> No, I know. It's always interested yeah. me that the Minotaur is like the singular uh, mythological creature in Greek mythology, at least, where 
where it's like top half animal, where he doesn't have the brain of a human, only the bottom, whereas everyone else is always like top half human and therefore like quote unquote civilized, you know, versus. Well, I mean, I'd be really hard pressed to make the centaurs into a civilized. Yeah, that's why, (laughs) you know. Because that's, well, that's another, that's another, um, but this is another, um, the centaur amici is another one of these myths that gets put on Athenian monuments Mm -hmm. as another analog of Athenian civilizing influence of the conquest of these foreign monsters. Yeah. Um, Right. I mean, it's also the the Athenians don't care that it also shows up on Olympia. Right. Like, but it's the same architects, (laughs) the same artists are working on both of these structures. So yes, is their hallmark. Right. But these are, these are stories about, you know, Athenian or, you know, Spartan or Greek, generally, you know, Greek get brought into this thing we would call Hellenic um, mythology of of them as the sort of bringers of of light and civilization. Mm-hmm. Centaurs aren't stupid, but they're not human. I know they're um, they're interesting because they are like they are monstrous, but at the same time, I guess yeah, like what I mean by I mean they're having they're hanging out and having dinner. They're invited exactly. to weddings. They're, you know? That's the thing. They're like they are more human. They have like these human, you know, it's almost as if they have like human thoughts and brains. They're just not good people kind of thing. You know, yeah, like they're yeah, monstrous yeah. in their actions, but I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's interesting to, I don't know. I like the, the, all the different monsters and what they kind of may or may not mean. Um, so, okay. The, the Amazon Amaki, we've talked like a little bit about that. I know it was like an enormous um, iconographic setting mm-hmm. or you know however you want to however i should phrase that but like you know that it kind of appeared on everything um yeah. and so like it, i don't know what quite what i'm asking but basically it seems to me that there was like a, a level of respect for the amazonomachy for the amazons generally but then still always depicting them as being both defeated by athens and also this like you know the foreign aspect um so yeah i mean is it always well, kind of connected them to Persia or yeah? No. So, so Andy Stewart, um, who a uh, great art historian who recently just passed away. Um, uh, I loved him. Um, he's a wonderful human being, hmm. but uh, he wrote an article back. Um, he was sort of one of the big experts on um, Koroi and Koroi statues, the sort of hmm. maiden statues, but also um, uh, Athenian red figure painting and hmm. um, uh, attic pottery and, uh, and sculpture. And he wrote an article, gosh, it might even have been in the 90s, but definitely early 2000s at the latest, um, on uh, vase representations of the Amazons uh, mm-hmm. and the Amazon Amaki. And one of the things that he, so, so what he basically argued, and, and once you see it, you can't unsee it, you see it on every vase. Like, mm. The Amazons are represented in two ways. One, they're represented simultaneously as mm. foreign invaders right they've got like the scythian cap on and they've got animal print leggings and everything but mm-hmm. over top of those animal print leggings and the animal print or like fancy designed um, leotard is the keton of 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 a um, parthenos hmm. which is the pre-married unmarried girl who is available for marriage like this is the coming of age girl and hmm. his argument was that they are simultaneously figures of fear uh, and danger, but also desire. Mm-hmm. And so 
I saw a vase painting in the Vatican Museum, which he had never seen, but I think it guarantees his interpretation in some ways, um, because it's not just that they're wearing the, the guises of the Parthenoi. Um, sometimes they have the leopard prints and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just have the keton on, but that mm -hmm. marks them as desirable, right? Mm -hmm. But in this particular vase, it's got a Greek warrior running in one direction um, and he's looking back words and it's got an amazon following him chasing him and she's looking at him as well and it is what we call a kalos face so someone used this vase as a gift for someone that they thought was beautiful and that they were in love with oh. um, but the vase has kalos over the male figure and kale over the, the amazon so here you have a greek amazon sort of erotic erotically charged love scene <laughs> like yeah. they're in the middle of a battle against each other but they're gazing at each other with desire and huh. this is recognized by whoever owned this pot because they chose to gift this pot as a sign of erotic affection to a beloved <laughs> so i think that there's something about you know and I think this is where Hippolytus, as a mythological figure, stands at this focus, because the thing that is wrong with Hippolytus is his rejection of eroticism and, and, and physical love entirely. He, is, yeah. he says, I have the heart of a Parthenos in his uh, speech. He doesn't yeah. say that he hates women. He says, I have the heart of a Parthenos. And that's going to read weird to anybody in an yeah. Athenian audience. <laughs> Right. But that's representing one of the desirable figures about the Amazon because he's a male Amazon. Right. He's just an Amazon in a man's body. Yeah. He's a Parthenos, which makes him eligible for and should be desired for marriage. But he rejects it. Mm -hmm. right? um, and so but I think this is what the Amazon is such a, an interesting figure for them is that it's not that they're an, anal an analogy necessarily for the Persian war itself. They can be used that way, but mm -hmm. that they also because of the gender aspect of, of the Amazons and what they represent, they are the sort of a locus of anxiety about a tension between fear and desire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're a danger, a threat to the very fabric of how Athenian life is, social life is structured. Mm -hmm. um, but that in some ways makes them makes them want them yeah it makes them so interesting i mean i imagine there's got to be some kind of inherent tie there too to the fact that they are women warriors right like the fear of a woman in that role probably i mean this is one of the things that makes them like they reject men um mm -hmm. they reject marriage um they reject the inside and they live in the outside mm -hmm. yeah it's like um, everything athenian women can't do Right. The ideals for the Athenian woman are, are like they're the opposite. But at the yeah. same time, they embody this one element of the desired pre-wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. They're sexually appealing. Mm -hmm. um, I love that you've so. not said the word virgin once, by the way. I appreciate that. The pre-wife is such a good way of describing <laughs> that. Well, because the word part of, so this is a problem, right? A woman, mm -hmm. as far as we can tell um, in our sources, a woman doesn't become a wife officially until she gives birth to her first child. Really? Um, <laughs> the actual yeah. birth? I mean, that's the, the word, yes. So that's what stops you from, it's not having sex. Mm -hmm. That's not what makes you not a parthenos. It's um, having a child. Mm-hmm. Um, if you sort of do a deep dive into the actual uses of the words in their connotations That's for great. women, um, the the dividing line between uh, between Parthenos and Gune is childbirth. It's not marriage itself. Huh. I, I and it's I, not I, sex. It's yeah. not sex. Yeah. 
That's really interesting. I've, I've like over the course of the podcast, I've, you know, changed how I phrase things based on because, you know, nine times out of 10, you read and in a translation, it's going to say the word virgin, like almost always. Right. Um, yeah. And it's wrong. I mean, yeah. but it's, 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 well, it's only wrong if you conceptualize virgin in the way that Christianity conceptualizes virgin. Well, um, exactly. if you sort of, right. If you rethink the fact, like the Greeks actually have, we have evidence that virginity was renewable. <laughs> like it wasn't yeah. like once something you lost and done, like you could like not have sex for six months and then you are ritually pure again to be a priestess for a cult and so you're a virgin again yeah um, <laughs> right? it's like you there are ways around the around that rule and Sharon James um, wrote a really short sort of little study of a poem by Archilochus um, in this like mass it's like this massive 600 page companion to women in the ancient world and she writes this like little three-page um, analysis of this little it's a fragmented poem by Archilochus in which he seduces the sister of like the woman who rejected him or something like that. I can't remember the hmm. whole story, but it's, it's basically evidence that premarital sex was not out with respectable women. <laughs> like, right. Right. Like that premarital sex wasn't the thing. Like as long as you didn't get pregnant, it's like her argument is like, there's, this is, there's, this is evidence that having sex before marriage was not the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it makes sense too, in relation to like all the mythological stories of, but at the same time, it's like any time that that like it needs to kind of serve a purpose where a god, you know, has sex with a, a mortal woman, like there's always going to be a child because well, yeah, they have like, super sperm. Yeah. Well, yes, of course. Exactly. Uh, they get to do what they <laughs> want with it. But that's yeah, it's interesting to I mean, I, I I'm just I'm fascinated now by the, the giving birth aspect, because I like I said, like I've kind of shifted my own phrasing to to say unmarried and to clarify, you know, that that when often when you see the word virgin it doesn't mean what we think today it it means unmarried but now knowing that it's more about like when the actual birth takes place is even more fascinating that feels like a very late moment (laughs) yeah there's actually a quite a few good articles on this i did a um Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I did a, I wrote a book review of the new Greek lexicon mm. <laughs> um, because that's what we do. We, we review dictionaries, um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, the, but they commissioned two different reviews. So one of the reviewers did a sort of general um, look at the sort of language of the dictionary. And I did a look specifically at the language of race and ethnicity and of gender mm. um, and women. Uh, because this was one of the big things that the the writers of the dictionary were really super um, interested in doing is updating the language around women and gender and sexuality because you know that 19th century Victorian dictionary is so out of touch with um, you know they, they basically turned the ancient Greeks into Victorians yeah. with the way they translated these terms and that's where that term virgin is in there if you look at the sort of newer Greek dictionary the new Cambridge lexicon of the Greek language, like they're much more nuanced in understanding 
um, how the word Parthenos, you know, or the word Gune or, or Palake, um, all sort of all these different Hetaira, which everyone also translates as Korakazin, but uh-huh. there are actually six different uses of the term. Yeah. Uh, Palake actually has like four different uses, one of which is just means a temple attendant. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with, with their relationship to men. Um, so, you know, when you actually do deep dives into the usages and you're not being shaded by your sort of Victorian morality, um, you realize that that these terms have a lot more nuance, um, and they don't fit cleanly into our assumptions about how we want to rebuild the ancient Greeks in our image. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I I mean, I still, and I brought this up recently in another conversation when I learned that heteros is often translated as companion or like comrade. Well, that's yeah, heteros, right? Is yeah. is your the your drinking buddies? Yeah, um, and then hetera is the is is a whore, you know, yeah, is a high class one. Blue um, but my in fact, mind. So, yeah, so I I wrote an article on this um, because um, the criteria that people use to classify what is and isn't a hetera, um, and this goes back to an article by Leslie Kirk who was like hetera are courtesans, they get, they get gifts. They don't get paid for sex. Mm. They get gifts. Um, and a porne is someone who gets paid money for sex. Right. Mm. That's very, um, narrow, narrow. Mm -hmm. There are these women, they do exist. Right. But this is, there's no sort of grand horizontale demimond hetairai, you know, grand courtesans, um, in, in fifth century Athens. Um, but women like Elpenike, who I mentioned earlier, Kaimon's Mm -hmm. sister, um, she is probably someone who would have been called a hetaira in her own time period, but not as a courtesan. She's known to be a citizen. She's known to be a wife of like the wealthiest Callias, the wealthiest man in Athens. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's a party girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have all these vases um, from antiquity that show women at symposia, some of them just women together. And we know that there were women only symposia. Of, hmm. They're not called symposia. They, they're called a penitus. But they, uh, my, my argument in the article was that when we see this term used um, in the context of a symposium, we have to be careful because it may in fact be that what we're talking about are these wealthy Athenian women mm-hmm. who, who are hanging out together and having parties with each other in the mm-hmm. same way that their hetairoi, the male guys, are getting together and having parties together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this is like Corsaira, you know, this wealthy woman who was known for partying and known for luxury. Um, and these are publicly known figures. These are not women who weren't named. These women were named in very public spaces and shamed. There was mm-hmm. a rumor that Elpenike and her brother Kaimon were having an incestuous relationship that was circulating. Mm-hmm. She was accused of having um, an affair with Polynotus the painter. But my the, the, my funnest um, piece of evidence for Elpenike and for Corsaira both is that um, the Athenians had this thing that I also refer to as the anti-election, right? So every few years, you would have an election every year yeah. if you get a quorum um to ostracize to kick somebody out of the city so you ostracize and you kick them out for 10 years they yeah. don't lose their citizenship they don't lose their property or they just have to move out for 10 years yeah. and they're not allowed back in the city and and normally you would do this if you think somebody's like getting um they're aiming at tyranny it's an anti-tyranny law right um but it was often just used by politicians like we know the last ostracism to take place was like uh, Alcibiades and Nicias were both up to be ostracized and they got together and colluded to make sure a third person that wasn't either of them got ostracized and the dude, innocent guy who did nothing. Right. And, they, and the Athenians were like, okay, this is like been corrupted. Like we can't use this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right? Alcibiades. But, that makes sense. That checks out. Yeah, totally. Right. Totally. Alcibiades. Um, but yeah, so, but 
Cimon gets ostracized, and so does a guy named Megacles, who's the son of Corsaira. And on the um, Ostracon, we have Ostracon, which are the broken pieces of pottery after which the, the process is named, mm-hmm. where you carve the name of the person you want to kick out. And so Megacles has Megacles and has the father's name and has son of Corsaira. Like, you don't put the mother's name on there unless mm-hmm. the mother's name carries a negative value mm-hmm. for you, right? Uh, Megacles is a guy who, while he was off in ostracism land, he went and won the Olympic chariot race. Like he's like, I don't give a fuck. Like yeah. kick me out of the city. I've got so much money. I don't Live care. My I can life. go wherever I want. Yeah. He was totally living his best life. Um, Chimon, you know, the one that from Chimon, it says, Chimon, son of Miltiades, take your sister. Yeah. Labon uh, Elpenikane Ito. Taking Elpenike, go, get out. And it uses Ito, the duel. Yeah. Um, so it wants so she's again named and shamed. It's like everybody knows who Kaiwan is. Take your sister and get the hell out of the city. Yeah. Like, so these are the women who I think that are the originating words for the sort of negative use of this term hetaira. Yeah. Um, these are party girls, and so when you see later in the fourth century these women who are sort of not available for marriage, often because they're foreign women, right. um, so they can't. You know, after the after the in the fourth century, you know. After 451, the children, if you marry a foreign woman, they can't become a citizen. There are still reasons to marry foreign women because you maybe have citizen children from your first marriage. And so right. you don't want any more citizen children. Um, but because uh, you have to divide the property equally. Yeah. So the so property will just that. keep getting smaller and smaller yeah. uh, every generation. Um, but uh, when they ban marriage finally in the fourth century, you know, these foreign women are completely ineligible for marriage. Um, yeah. but they're, they're getting paid to come to parties and, and, you know, things like this. So, but those negative connotations, I think actually root back to these like really famous, wealthy, don't give a fuck party girls. Um, they're like the Kardashians of their generation. Yeah. Um, think, I always think like Paris Hilton, you know, in sort of her heyday. Yes. I was um, just going to okay. age myself by, yeah, suggesting Paris Hilton in like the 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like that's yeah. sort of, you know. Um, and is that these are, and they were, you know, they were in all the tab. If we had legal speeches from that period, we know that like friends of Pericles were charged with heresy, um, with violate, you know, with with sacrileges. And Aspasia was supposedly one of these people. Well, Aspasia is a wealthy foreign woman who is probably married to Pericles. Her sister was married to, you know, Alcibiades the Elder. She's not a prostitute. Hmm. She was living in Pericles' home. She's not running a brothel out of Pericles' home. Like, mm-hmm. these are just stories that we tell to demonize these women mm-hmm. um, because they don't fit into our boxes. Um, yeah. I actually just wrote the new um, ancient history encyclopedia entry on Aspasia uh, and, you know, pulled in all the evidence to show that this, like, calling this woman a courtesan is, or, or a madam is just absolutely historically inaccurate and you need to stop people yeah <laughs> but she's part of this sort of this sort of mythos of these sort of wealthy elite women um yeah who were sort of function they were companions of each other yeah <laughs> because yeah. I mean, Sappho, that's how Sappho talks about she uses the word hetaira to talk about her girlfriends that she hangs out with yeah yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's just, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I just can't. So you, when you brought that up, it just like hits one of yeah. my pet peeves about no. bad scholarship. And- no, I, <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear all of that. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like, so actually just last week, I also recorded with um, Melissa Funky, who's just written. Oh, yeah, I love Melissa. About, yeah, she's wonderful. And, and she's got this book coming out about Freene. And so like with a lot of this is like connecting right into that conversation. Because- yeah, I actually argued in my Immigrant Women book, I have a little tiny bit on Freene because she shows mm. up in these 
you know, courtroom discourses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I argued that Frenet um, was not actually uh, prosecuted, you know, she was prosecuted because of her relationship with an Athenian man because she had crossed the boundary that she shouldn't have crossed in this mm-hmm. period. Um, mm-hmm. But she probably actually, based on the evidence we have, I think she was actually um, very much integrated into sort of upper class society as as the uh, priestess of a foreign cult. Hmm. Um, Interesting. We have evidence that she's she's told she was accused in n- numerous documents. She's accused of um, bringing foreign gods into the city. Hmm. Um, and one of the things that she was the, the sacrilegious trial that she was put on trial for was um, for worshiping a foreign god. Like, but she's hanging out with like all the people that she's that are in this this context are all wealthy citizens. Mm-hmm. So she crossed the citizen foreigner boundary in a way that she shouldn't have, but she is not a prostitute. Yeah. Um, no. For, yeah. you know, it's like, it just doesn't make sense, but she probably was associated in some ways with, with parties and, mm-hmm. you know, the wealthy life and potentially with foreign cult. Mm-hmm. Um, but a mm-hmm. lot of um, foreigners living in um, Athens, particularly in Piraeus, um, are associated with foreign cults because foreign cults all had the, the Isis cult, Magda Mater. There's so many foreign gods that were brought in to Athens through the port. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them were priestesses. We have all these tombstones for priestesses of foreign cults everywhere <sighs> in the Piraeus. I want to hear everything about everyone. Um... <laughs> That's like a whole other conversation. I know. This is like when I had to like rein myself in. I was like, oh my God, I really want to learn it all. And you've also just got like great timing. I'm after we finished here, I'm going to record next uh, Tuesday's episode, which I've, I'm talking about, I'm trying to talk about Rome a little bit and I'm talking about Cabele. So the Magnum Monster, but in the Roman context. Um, yeah, it's okay. It's just yeah. There's a really great if you go. I, I don't know if it's online. I'm sure you can find a picture of it. But if you um, do Piraeus Magna Mater, you'll find mm-hmm. um, they have the cult statue and sort of some remnants of the temple um, mm-hmm. in the museum. There, it's pretty cool. Um, I... And then you have all of these uh, tombstones for people who were um, priestesses of the cult. That's so cool. It's so fascinating. I have to admit something. I still have not been to the Piraeus Museum, and I don't know why or how because you I can go take to Greece the metro the down there now. I know. The metro. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just the worst. I need to just do it. Um, yeah. Next trip. There's no question. I don't. It's know how the I best. It's the best museum in the area. Like I, I think. It, I think it's. Well, it's one of my favorite museums in all of Greece. Um, in no small part because it has the the amazing Piraeus bronzes, which yeah, you're that's... just not going to see anything like it. No. Um, but it has all these sort of like. I mean, obviously it has a lot of foreigners' tombs, which is yeah. why I spent my time there. Yeah. Um, but it has um, all these elements from the economy of the city because it's the port. Right. Um, and so you have remnants of that aspect that you just don't see in other places because yeah. people weren't doing their money exchanging or their weights and measures, you know, in the city of Athens. They were doing it when they arrived in the port. Yeah. It's like customs. You got to do that first. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. So I just, I just really love, and the, the museum's just beautifully laid out um, yeah. oh, and, and nice. It's just nice. It's a nice museum. It's, it's not too like big. Like you can Greece. do it. Yeah, that's good. Every time I go to the National Archaeological, I'm just like, I, I, I don't, I can't be standing this long, but there's too much to see and I can't. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, when, when you're there, like if you're there with the American School um, of Classical Studies in Athens, the ASCSA, if you do like the summer session or or something like during the regular year, I guess they go like repeatedly over the year, but like during the summer session, we go like four times in six weeks oh uh, for like different sessions. Yeah. Um, so you, cause you go for different things each time and yeah. you can't always predict when the pottery room is going to be open because uh, staffing is always an issue. 
Um, and so the upstairs sometimes gets shut down. So you have to like sort of time oh, I'm glad it. That's right? never happened to me. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But the um, it's I, we take students and we, you know, we have one day to do the, the museum. Yeah. Um, so what we did this time, there's a great cafe there, though, the, like the, the lower level cafe. If you've been, yeah. it's, it's really great. And they have good teropita. Oh, um, oh. or casseropita my favorite which is the cassiri cheese Ooh. um but uh we sort of break it's four hours we do four hours which is a shorter day than we do in a lot of other places but a lot of other places we're moving around so like you know we're in delphi or we're you know yeah. um in in olympia and so you like we do museum in the morning and then you said take a break for lunch for a couple hours and then you meet back up you know whatever but the archaeological museum is just like it's ridiculous so yeah. um so we just do a four hour straight, but we do like, you know, we do the first floor and then everyone gets a break if they want to go to the cafe. Um, we bring granola bars for them, you know, whatever. And then we do the up, upper floor and then we just let them loose for the day because four hours in that museum is more yeah. exhausting than eight hours at Olympia. Yeah. Um, it's, just like, it's just too yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh my God. And I, yeah. I was there like not even two months ago and I'm already like, oh my God, why am I in Canada? <laughs> Um, yes. I mean, this is, you know, you ask this question all the time, like, you know, I leave, I leave in May and I come back in July and, or August, you know, I try to get back by the beginning of August so I can actually reorient myself for, for work. Yeah. Um, Also, it's so fucking hot. Oh my God. Okay. This is amazing. Clearly. Um, I could, I could talk about Grace forever. (laughs) I won't try to keep you for longer than two hours. Seriously, thank you so much for doing this. This is absolutely fascinating. I just, I love the melding of history and mythology so much. And yeah, thank you for sharing everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's really funny because I, you know, when when I, I, I'm an ancient historian, but I'm also a fully trained, you know, philologist and liter- mm. lit scholar. And you know, my first book was actually on um, the myths of Athena on the tragic stage, like with Ooh. the feature, it plays the feature Athena. And what does it mean to have your patron goddess of your city uh, and of your empire show up on the tragic stage yeah. uh, in this highly politicized context? Um, can you separate the myth from the politics at all? Right. Yeah. Um, and so I've always been super fascinated by it. And uh, unfortunately, like not many other people are super fascinated <laughs> <laughs> um, I am. There's a really. I mean, if you've, I mean, if, I'm sure you've read Sophie Mills' book on Theseus, the myths of Theseus. No, um, I've, I've been taking notes of books you've mentioned on this. Call well, Sophie, so, Sophie Mills wrote, I think, one of the best books on Theseus's story uh, in Athens. Oh, I'm so excited! Um, okay, yeah. So it's it's a great one. Um, but she's like was writing her book around the same time I was writing mine and my dissertation, um, which was that's so my dissertation was on, and then the book just was like added Euripides. Um, my advisor announced her retirement when I was like four months into my dissertation. And so I had to finish it like by the end of the following year. So oh I had God. to start to start to defense and, and graduation was 15 months. And so I was like, how am I going to do this? Oh, no Euripides. So um, no, I added Euripides sad. for the book version. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just added him in. I, then I, then I had something to revise for when yeah. I went to go write the book. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, there's not a lot of people who are, uh, who, who do this kind of, historical analysis in part because some bad people did it like did it badly you know in the Mm. 80s (laughs) so like once you do it badly everyone's like oh this is you know can't do this anymore um but i think when you start to actually do you do the sort of intellectual history of athens 
or or what I like what I do, which is uh, the German word for it is Begriffsgeschichte, the, the history of <laughs> concepts, um, mm. like justice or you know things like this. When you start to yeah. sort of dig into what these you know, concepts and how they function and move. Um, you're both in the realm of ideology, but you're also outside of the realm of ideology because you're actually looking at the real man- daily manifestations of these things mm-hmm. um, and how they're they're you, you're looking at the propaganda as well as the sort of unintended consequences of them. And there's no way. I mean, every reconstruction of history that we make, particularly, I mean, even talking about the Greeks, right? They're a mythological group. They're not real. Mm-hmm. It's, um, they're, that's not how they identified themselves. Um, in the ancient world. And even if you you substitute the word Hellene for Greek, um, Hellene is a tertiary, you know, identity for them. Their primary Mm -hmm. identity is their polis, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or their region um, or, you know, their family. So I think that we we need to be more interested in this integration of history and myth Mm -hmm. and be less afraid to pretend we're dealing in facts when many of the facts that we deal with are in fact myths. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about when it comes to to Greece, like there's so everything is so inextricably tied because they had this mythos that like included everything. Like one of the things I face so often when people are asking me questions about gods they've heard of somewhere or other, you know, like Nemesis is a great example. They'll be like, well, tell me everything you can about Nemesis. And I'm like, Nemesis was a concept like, yes, a goddess, but like a concept and there are so many of those gods and goddesses where like what matters about them is the concept. There aren't stories for the most part that you can find and retell. And like, I can't devote an entire episode to stories of, of so <laughs> countless gods. Right. I mean, Nemesis is one of them, like, cause it's more about how they tied like real life, everything to a God or a goddess. And to me, that's so much more interesting than having a story to tell necessarily, but like, it also makes it very difficult when people want to understand it that aren't like, you know, deep in this. Um, well, and that's all, they're, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're appealing to the, to the, to the, you know, original meaning of the word mythos, which is a story, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But the, the stories, like gods have guises, like, well, which Athena do you want? Do you want mm-hmm. Athena Polios? You know, do you want, uh, you know, do you want Zeus Eleutherios? Do you want Zeus Olympia? Like they, they have regional identities. Mm-hmm. Um, they have different affiliations. We, we often flatten out the fact that the way that the goddess Athena in, in, in Corinth is worshipped differently than the goddess Athena is worshipped in Athens. They're the same mm-hmm. goddess, but mm-hmm. they're, they're, they are worshipped different, very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, Aphrodite is worshipped differently mm. in different places. And, and Hera, like he, people forget that Hera is the primary deity of Sparta, right? Um, of Sparta, have... really? <laughs> I, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's the primary deity of Sparta. I was thinking and, of And um, like one of the oldest temples we have is the Menelaon, but it was called mm. the Menelaon, but most of the finds that we had there suggested it should be called the Helenaon, the Helenaon. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the finds are then worshipped as a couple, divine couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so we have these, like, we have these female deities, but Hera was the primary, the first temple of Zeus actually is the Horaeon at Olympia, probably, hmm. before they built the big one. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's, we don't have those stories. Mm-hmm. 
so so you have to distinguish the gods from the myths like mm -hmm. the gods that were worshipped and the gods and they're in the stories are not the same thing yeah. but there are regional variations of the stories because the stories were in fact used as propaganda but they were also used simply as stories that people told for funsies yeah yeah. Right, it's not a it's not a flat thing. It's not it's not one dimensional. It has all these different components and aspects to it, um, and this is why you can see a myth that you know the story that we get from Ovid that people often think of as the paradigm. Ovid mm. and Greek tragedy and Homer tend to be the three places that people say these are the original stories when in fact they all contradict each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and how can Ovid be the original version of a story about Apollo? Right. Yeah. Um, right yeah. how much does he reflect of that story they all want to find an er version and they want mm -hmm. to have the correct version mm -hmm. um and that just it just doesn't work that way well no and then like you know take into account which i think is so it's not emphasized enough when you're just coming at this like picking up any old book of mythology like also the time periods happening there like when you're talking about homer tragedy to ovid we're talking about so many yeah. hundreds of years in between everybody that like, but everything about Greek mythology gets flattened, like you're saying, into this like one concept, this one like idea of a thing where it's like, no, you can't, if something's lasting a thousand years minimum, like you can't be talking about it as if it's like one thing that has a, you know, yes and no answer, a right and a wrong. And, oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. But it's, just, it's, it's, it's this sort of thing where, um, what is the purpose of a myth? A myth is a story mm. that is told to to convey something to the audience listening to it. And that's why there are so many different versions because they're not monolithic audiences. Um, and mm. because time changes, location changes, interests change, purpose changes. So, you know, it's a, a myth is only as powerful as its reception. Mm -hmm. Right. If if a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, did the tree fall? If a myth is to, if a story is told and it doesn't get picked up and repeated, you know, by yeah. by a member of the audience, you know, it, was it ever told? But it's it's you know, myths are vehicles for understanding contemporary existence for the people who are telling the stories. Yeah. So that's what tragedy is. Um, yeah. You know, that's why they use these mythical logical ciphers. It's a way to negotiate the present by using stories that. Uh, that they can sort of deflect uh, yeah. difficulties onto. Right. I so. just could talk about mythology forever if that isn't clear <laughs> about like the six years I've been doing this is just like a random person. But oh my gosh, I just, I love conversations like this so much. So thank you so much for doing it. I Yeah, absolutely. Oh absolutely. Oh, it's so exciting. Um, <laughs> is there anything that you want to share with my listeners about like where they can read more from you or hear more from you? Oh, I know you um, don't have Twitter anymore, I found. but <laughs> Yeah, I know. I quit Twitter last year um, and I, I don't even realize that I quit Twitter sometimes. Like I forget that I was ever on Twitter. Um, well, you been... missed all the worst of it. So you're doing great. You left before well, it started to explode. <laughs> Um, I also haven't touched my blog in a year. I mean, if you want to go read a bunch of my stuff, I, I have a, t a table of contents page up now so you can find some of my greatest hits. Um, that's everything from sort of women in myth to um, immigration law in Athens to, you know, modern receptions, whatever. Um, but that's classics at the intersections. But uh, I haven't really felt like writing on my blog in like a year. It's like five years of my life. And I just stopped one day and, you know, sort of didn't care anymore. Um, I respect that. Sometimes it just stops. Think, yeah. Well, I'm I'm just finishing I'm just finishing up my my most recent book, um, which will hopefully be out 
um, with Johns Hopkins University Press next year um, by the summer. Um, it's called Ancient Identities, Modern Politics. So a lot mm-hmm. of the sort of myths that we've talked about today, like make their appearance there, but I try to put it into the bigger context of the sort of Greco-Roman Mediterranean and how Greeks understood their own identity, how Romans understood their own identities, um, how we impose identities on them, and then how mm. we use them for mm. our own purposes in the modern world. So. Okay, well, can't wait for that. that fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so that's 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 what people can look for that, but probably not for at least like six months to eight months. Yeah, well, um, hey, I'm maybe just, I'll bring you back I, on yeah. to talk about it when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just finishing up. I'm just finishing up the last chapter, um, and then once the last chapter is done. Um, it will be ready because everything else is completely done. Like it's already been revised and edited. Oh, wow. And, you know, everything else is polished and ready to go. It's just this last chapter, which is on um, 19th and early 20th century and then sort of more modern um, resurgences of um, modern scientific racism and the use of oh. ancient theories of identity in the building of those ideas. So oh my eugenics and, um, uh, you know, theories of evolution of civilizations um, and then how we sort of are using ancient DNA to sort of bring all of that back. The Dorian invasion myth, you know. Oh, gosh, Yeah. <laughs> Western uh, civilization. Yes, that good old term. Yeah. Well, that sounds yeah. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, so th- this one's just uh, trying to get it into you know six to seven thousand words. There's so much racism, you know, so many racisms, yeah. and so so little space. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very appropriate when talking about that stuff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't, not uh, enough space to. Yeah, so I'm really. trying to like you know it gets you start talking about you know hippocratic um theories of uh of um environmental theories and uh but cranial formation oh, you know God. how 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 you inherit you know how people shape heads and then they like and can it, it becomes heritable um and then you get sucked into 19th century craniometry and you're like oh my god this is like a wormhole i didn't really want to go down <laughs> people like pulling beans into skulls to like decide whether a skull is of a white man or a you know, black man or an Asian. Oh my it's God. Like, yeah. It's, 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 and how brain, the, the more beans, the higher the brain capacity. So this must be a white person, you know. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, the more beans. <laughs> Just, yeah. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 my favorite part though is like when you got like super racist guy over here who's like, you know, using beans to like fill skulls to decide who's white. And then you got another equally and perhaps even more racist guy over here on the other side who's like, look, you can't use skulls because look at these inferior savage, you know, people from, you know, the, the Pacific Northwest who carry their babies on flat cradles. And so their heads flatten. And this is a human intervention. And therefore, skulls can't be. Uh, you know, a, a natural signifier. <laughs> These primitive civilizations form, form like shape skulls, so it's not an objective measure of genetics. You know? <laughs> Using racism to discount other racism. The other racism, right? It's like, you know, <laughs> Jesus. Right. That's that's been my life. So I, you know, for like the yeah. last year. So that's why I guess I haven't written in my blog. That's um. fair. Yeah. Sounds distracting. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, there are too many, too many racisms to deal with it. <laughs> what a perfect way to wrap up the episode. <laughs> too many racisms. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, right. yeah, oh it was God. really wonderful to be on, um, and, and <laughs> we'll talk again sometime. I'm sure. Yes, thank you so much. Oh my right, God, thanks, Liv. 
words. Thank you all for listening as always. Like, fuck, I love, I love conversation episodes so much. I'm just so incredibly grateful for all the brilliant people who want to come on my show and just nerd out with me about these things, share everything that lives in their brains and just blow my mind over and over again. And that you all want to hear them. Fuck. You just want to learn all the same things as me. It's fucking magnificent. So huge thank you to Rebecca for not only coming on the show and sharing all of this fascinating history and politics and mythology and so much more, but also specifically for telling me about the sea turtles off the coast of Corinth, right where Skiron mythologically kicked his victims into the so-called gaping maws of man-eating sea turtles. We can only assume that the turtles of today, and let's be honest, the ones of the ancient world too, uh, probably didn't have any interest in eating random people that, you know, were walking across the isthmus. But it's cool to think about the myth of them doing it, I guess. And that they exist there now. I'm not over it. You can find more from Rebecca on her website, uh, which I've linked to in the episode's description. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She is my assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron. Where you get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I love this shit. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, 
and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.